Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, Mike, as we look at the life of Stephen, it might be helpful just to get a sense of sort of what's going on in, in the world at the time. What's going on in the church, should we say? Well, we, we encounter Stephen in Acts chapter 6. So we've had five chapters so far in Acts of what is really phenomenal growth of the church. In chapter 1, we get the ascension of Jesus and his promise to send the Holy Spirit. Uh, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that amazing preaching by Peter and 3,000 becoming saved. And, and then in Three and four, we come across miracles and yet more thousands being added to the church. But it's not just outward growth. There's also inward growth. The end of chapter four, all the believers were united in heart and they had everything in common and they're sharing their possessions and you need something and I've got it, so I give it to you. And and then a bit of a solemn warning in chapter five, the story of Ananias and Sapphira who wanted to look good and pretended to have given more to the church than they actually had. And the issue wasn't what they gave, but it's what they pretended they had given. And they're both struck down dead. Pretty solemn warning. It's as Mm -hmm. if Jesus is saying, I'm not having that stuff in my church, particularly at this early stage. So we've got a picture of exciting growth. But then, of course, that's starting to meet with opposition from the religious leaders and the high priests. So in chapter five, the apostles are healing many, um, but it's the high priests and the officials who who then have the apostles arrested and, and actually put in jail. So where are we at? Exciting days, growing church, miracles happening, huge generosity. So lots of growth but growth that is meeting some resistance from the Jewish authorities. And in chapter six, growth that is just about to hit a wall a little bit internally in the church as well. In in what sense? Well, in chapter six, we read these words that as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. You think rumblings of discontent? Who could start getting you know, unhappy about a growing church and miracles and salvations by the thousand. Well, Luke goes on to tell us here in Acts, he says, the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So we perhaps better unpack that a bit, hadn't we? The Jews in their history had ended up spreading all over the world, the known world. Those that had stayed in Judea, in the Holy Land, were Hebraic Jews, Jews who still spoke the Hebrew language and Aramaic as it had become. But of course, those who'd been scattered didn't speak Hebrew and Aramaic. They spoke Greek, the international language of the day. Mm -hmm. And so what it looks like was happening is within the church itself, there there was a bit of a pecking order coming here. And the Christians who came from a Hebrew 
Jewish background within the Holy Land were perhaps seeing themselves as a little bit more superior, a little bit more important than the sort of just slightly second-rate Christians from a Jewish background who spoke Greek. So we're talking here about Christians, yes, but from two different, we would say two different cultural backgrounds. This is two cultures trying to work out how they live together and complaints come. Now, the widows are being looked after. One of the strong themes in the New Testament about caring for widows in the Christian community. And so the widows and their friends from the wider dispersed community who'd come to Jerusalem, presumably for the festival of Passover and the days that followed, those from the wider Greek cultural background were complaining that those who were distributing food to the widows were favoriting those who came from the Hebrew background. So you can perhaps imagine them all in the lineup at, you know, the distribution of food here. And um, the guy who's behind the counter is is from a Jewish Christian background. And, you know, oh, yeah, Jewish Christian lady here, give her a good bit of chicken in the food. But then comes a a Christian from a Greek background. I think, oh, you know, she's not quite as important. Yeah, there's there's a bit of scraggy wing there I'll give to her rather than chicken <laughs> breast. And this leads to resentment right. growing up in the community. This is not what the people of God are supposed to be. But it's interesting. It comes out of the fact that the believers are rapidly multiplying. So it's it's a problem of growth. And still today, you know, whenever churches grow, what do we meet? We meet challenge? How do we fit? How do we integrate new people? How do we change our old system so that new people in can feel apart and don't feel outsiders? So this is a hugely relevant story still are you today. That, are you saying that there's jealousy and injustice in the church today? I really wouldn't like to comment on other people's churches. Um, I, I, I think we don't get that um, deliberately. I don't think any real Christian would ever want to deliberately set out to be unjust or unfair. But I think what we need to explore sometimes is simply the way we have always done some things just doesn't help new people who are coming into the church. And we can end up saying, well, you'll have to change. Well, do you know what? Maybe it's us that have to change. Why do we have to do that? Well, we've done it like that for 150 years since the church was set up. Then maybe it's time to change how we did it to make it easier for those who are coming in, for those who are different, and particularly where we have the privilege of other cultures coming into our church, just including them. I've seen again and again in churches, sometimes uh, the faces of African or Indian brothers and sisters light up when we sing a song from their cultural background rather than our own, because, you know, we just got no rhythm in England, have we, like some of these brothers and sisters have. So I I think it's more about the change that we would need to do that we're unaware of. I'm sure these people did not set out deliberately to marginalise some of their fellow brothers and sisters, but there was something within them whereby they were favouriting their own, and I don't think they were even seeing it. How did they sort it out then? Did they organise a committee? (laughs) Well, it was a very small committee. Very small committees are always to be 
commended. As we read on in the story, it says that the 12, interesting, the 12, because the 12 had become 11, hadn't they, after... These are the apostles. Yeah, after Judas had committed suicide. But in Acts 1, we read about how they'd appointed another apostle, a witness from the beginning, this guy called Matthias. So the 12 apostles called a meeting of the believers, um, and they said, now, look, we, we can't get involved in this. You know, we've just got to keep giving ourselves to preaching and the word of God and prayer. So what we want you to do, uh, brothers and sisters, and it throws, they throw this back to the church and say, select for yourself seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll give this responsibility to them. So they push it back to the place where the complaints have come from. Okay, if you feel it's not being done fairly, then you yourselves choose seven who can do this work for you. The interesting thing is, in the names that follow, all the names are Greek names. In other words, <laughs> they prioritize the community that was feeling marginalized. And it's in that list of names that we meet the guy that we're talking about today. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch. And these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them, laid their hands on them. Isn't that interesting? This is a spiritual task, even though it's a physical, practical expression. And these guys are now committed to doing this work of caring for the poor in their community. And our guy, Stephen is one of those seven. And the qualifications then for reorganising the distribution of food to the widows, you've just highlighted. Isn't it interesting? It talks about them being full of the spirit and wisdom. So it's like two things are needed, you know, the practical and the spiritual. It needed wisdom. It needed some wisdom to break this logjam. And the first wisdom is in the sort of people that they chose, but it doesn't just need wisdom. Um, wisdom is just human on its own. It also needs men who are full of the Holy Spirit. So here is this beautiful blending of what today we might call the, the practical and the spiritual. We want people who've got the practical gifts to do this and whom you trust to do it, but it does need to be as well deeply spiritual people, deeply prayerful people, um, because they know they are doing this not just to divide this food up in equal portions, but they're doing this for the Lord. They're doing this to serve him. How do you see the application in our churches today? Well, I think what it says is whenever we're appointing anyone to any sort of leadership post, elder, deacon, youth leader, whatever it might be, um, it needs people who, Yes, either already have or show potential for growing in a particular practical gift, but they also need to be prayerful, spiritual. I wouldn't want to appoint a youth leader who was brilliant at just doing fun and games, but who had no relationship and no walk with Jesus, because that's what I want my young people to catch. But nor do I want him to be so spiritual that he doesn't know how to have fun with the young people, because that's what also will attract them. So I think for any position that we're ever appointing um, today in church or in Christian organizations or charities, to have men and women who have both 
practical skills or potential to grow in that practical skill and who are full of the Spirit, who are prayerful, who when they hit a problem won't just try and solve it themselves but will say, Lord, what should we do about this? Who are teachable and open to other leaders who who don't keep an area as this is mine now but who are full of the Spirit and therefore open to others. Man, with those sort of leaders in place, the church really can go places. And that's exactly what happened here because that little story we've just read ends up with these words. So God's message continued to spread and the number of believers greatly increased. So when we get it right and we get the right balance of the spiritual and the practical working together, this is for the good and the growth of the church this story shows us. So Stephen was one of these seven men appointed to this role. How does his story unfold? Well, he's clearly far more than just a practical server of food because Luke then goes on to tell us another story about Stephen. I'll just read these few verses. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, oh, wow, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. So here's a guy who is not just practical, not just prayerful, but he's actually putting this into practice. He, he, he's out there among the people. He's out there on the street doing, quotes, amazing miracles and signs among the people. Now, he's opposed because of that, says that one day some men from the synagogue of free slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. And none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. So let's not dismiss, oh, Stephen, yeah, he was the practical guy. He was like, you know, the caretaker in the church. He was the guy who uh, uh, served in the, the food bank and churned out the meals every Tuesday. No, he did that practical stuff, but he was also an incredibly powerful testimony to Jesus by by both word and action. How easy it is to pigeonhole people. It is, isn't it? And just to write someone off because, well, this is what they do or this is what we've given them to do. And I think it's so important never to put lids on people and constantly to be looking in our church life to, to give people more opportunities, to stretch them, to see what's in them. Because I can guarantee you this, there is more in them than we think there is. And there is certainly more in them than they think there is. And it's only when we get an opportunity to step out, we discover what that is. To what extent did Stephen land himself in trouble? Oh, he lands himself in huge trouble because he really, really is not appreciated by his Jewish opponents. So some of these guys from the synagogue of the, the freed slaves obviously from ancestors that had been slaves and freed at some point in their history, um, decide to gang up against him. And they, well, they basically persuade people to to lie about Stephen and to start spreading rumours that they, they've heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. Well, this obviously stirs up the Jewish community in Jerusalem. And so because of this, eventually, uh, Stephen is arrested and be brought before the 
Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And we read this, the lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. Now, speaking against the temple at the time of Jesus was one of the few crimes for which death penalty could be instituted. And that's why they go for this. And that's why we often find that in the Gospels and in Acts, that there are accusations of speaking against the temple. So he's speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses. Now, of course, he's done no such thing, though in his preaching about Jesus, who both fulfills the law and fulfills the temple, he's saying something bigger and better has come that they point to. They obviously feel they've got grounds for accusing him. And they go on to say, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So here's this very strong accusation, an accusation that really could lead and will lead to Stephen's death. And then something amazing happens. It says at the end of chapter six, at this point, everyone in the Sanhedrin, in the high council, stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel. My goodness, I wonder what happened there. Something happened. I mean, God came. God came alongside this guy, strengthened him for what was about to happen. Uh, but it doesn't change their attitude. They're still going to carry on. Because he's facing a stitch-up, basically. Oh, complete stitch-up. I mean, this is this is lie from start to finish, and it's a taking of half-truths. I mean, that happens so much against Christians today, doesn't it? People take half-truths or bits of what we believe and twist it in their context to make us say something that we don't say or don't believe, and then they use that straw man against us to knock us down. So it is a complete stitch-up against a man who in just these few verses of chapter 6 has been set out as godly, caring, compassionate, full of wisdom, full of passion for communicating the gospel. He's prayed for people and they've been healed and miracles have happened. But because he won't dot the I's and cross the T's of the Jewish religious authorities, they don't want anything to do with him. Just like for many Christians in the West today, because we won't align ourselves with certain cultural demands at the moment to accept certain things as the norm, we are dismissed for everything else that we do, and that's what happens with Stephen. I suppose he could have kept his mouth shut. I suppose he could, but this guy was so full of the Holy Spirit. He just can't. And in fact, the whole of chapter 7 is of him doing anything but keeping his mouth shut. Um, we get the last speech he ever made, or Luke's summary of the last speech he ever made, Interestingly, this is the longest speech in the whole of Acts, which shows how the early church were really impacted by what happened here. Stephen, of course, is going to become the first but not the last martyr uh, in the Christian church. And so he could have kept his mouth shut, but he knows this is not the moment to keep your mouth shut. You know, there are times come even in our life today 
when we have to decide, are you going to stand up for Jesus now? Are you going to speak up? And we've got stories in the New Testament where people make the wrong decision. Peter, you're one of his followers, aren't you? No, I'm not. And what a mess that led him to. Mm. But Stephen decides, this is the moment. This is the time for me to stand up. You're falsely accusing me. So I'll tell you the story of Jesus and how he fits into your story. And so this is his sort of testimony, really, is it? Do you know what, David? It's a mixture of his testimony, but it's also the mixture of their testimony because what he does very cleverly, uh, good evangelism, by the way, is clever evangelism. You know, it doesn't always launch him with a, you need Jesus now. It, it starts with a point of contact that people can identify with, and that's certainly what Stephen does because what he does here is he takes these Jewish leading officials, the chief priests, the leading Pharisees and so on, and and he takes them through the whole of the history of Israel. What they should already know. What they should already know, what they do know. But what he's going to try and do is draw some things out of it that they are missing. And so he, actually, if ever you want a quick summary of the Old Testament, Acts chapter 7 is a great place to go. It doesn't tell you everything, but it does tell you um, the key points. So he, he starts where every good Jew would start. He starts with Abraham about how God appeared to Abraham and called him and said, leave your country and your relatives and go to the land that I will show you. And he goes on to talk about the covenant that God made with Abraham. These are all things that they would be nodding and saying, yes, yes, that's right too. And he, he goes through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He goes through the story of one of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph, through whom Israel was able to end up going to Egypt to avoid the famine. He talks about how a new Pharaoh arose who didn't know anything of what Joseph had done and ended up making the Israelite slaves. He talks about Moses and how God called him, raised as, as an Egyptian, even though he was born a Hebrew, and how he called him to lead God's people from slavery through the wilderness, how he gave the law through them, how they walked for 40 years through the wilderness and God provided for them miraculously all that way. So he's building up the story, building up the story. Mm -hmm. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And you can imagine thinking, yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. And then suddenly he turns the knife. <laughs> he says, but our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. Now that was historical fact, and they would have to agree with that as well. Mm -hmm goes on about how they rejected him, wanted to go back to Egypt, even turned away from God and built the golden calf and so on. And he's sowing the idea that just being part of God's people does not always mean that you will hear God and obey God. And then he comes back to his story about the tabernacle and then King David and God wanting, or David wanting to, to build a, a temple for God, but God saying, no, I, I don't need a temple. Heaven's my throne. I'll, I'll build a house for you. And suddenly the knife goes in again. 
you stubborn people. You were heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Oh, my goodness. I bet the atmosphere changed at that moment. Suddenly became a bit personal. Suddenly personal because he's been telling this story where they're saying, yes, yes, yes. But you're heathen at heart. You're deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did. So he's taking them back to their story again. Name one prophet that your ancestors didn't persecute. Now, they they still can't say no because this is historical truth. But eventually we read this, that the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. But listen, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. He has this incredible vision. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honour at God's right hand. And, And suddenly they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting and they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And his accusers took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man called Saul, the future Apostle Paul. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that he died. Here is the first Christian martyr. He's told them their history with a view to showing how Jesus fulfills that. And yet, as he has come to challenge them to say, but you are resisting God like your ancestors always have in the story that I have told you, they hate it. And they hate it even more when this Jesus, whom they think they've got rid of, Stephen there claims, is at the right-hand side of God in heaven. That, of course, was a blasphemous claim. Only God was truly God. And here was Stephen claiming that Jesus was this God, as indeed we know him to be. And the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. So so for them, the truth was too close for comfort? Far too close for comfort. You know, I think they must have been squirming as they heard all of this because what he had told them was all true. You know, they would have been nodding saying, yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. And yet it's like, you know, what was the purpose of the Old Testament? It was to prepare the way for and to point the way to this Jesus. And all he was doing was taking them through their story that prepared the way for and pointed to Jesus But when he challenges them with being stubborn and deaf to the truth, that's it. They don't want to hear anymore. Now he is challenging them to change. And yeah, this this vision of Jesus at the right hand of God, how can this Jesus whom they got rid of, whom they crucified, whom they had decided was an upstart and a traitor and, and, and a rebel against God, how could he be at the right hand side of God? And so they stoned Stephen. Can we also be in danger of listening to truth and not taking it in? I'm sure we can. And I think particularly 
you know, for those of us who've been Christians for many years, we become familiar with our Bibles. You know, hopefully we we read them every day or at least pretty much every day. And the trouble is we come to a passage and we've read it many times, many times, and it sometimes just goes over us and we no longer, we hear the truth, but we don't hear the truth. That, by the way, is why it's sometimes good to read the Bible in different translations, just because it jolts you a little and makes you read it differently. So I think it is easy for us to self-righteously stand and think, yes, 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 but to miss the point and the challenge that would, would come to us as we read Scripture, just as these people were missing the point and the challenge of Stephen, Stephen, not not a rebel, not a renegade, a godly, godly man who knew his Bible, who knew his Jewish history, who was full of the Holy Spirit, whose only heart was to serve, but who had the audacity to tell these people that they were sitting in complacency and that they needed to change. He died praying for himself and praying for those very people that were accusing him. Amazing, isn't it? Just like his master, of course, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's walking the steps of his master. So, yes, he prays for himself, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But prays for them. His very last words, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. What an incredible example of walking in the way that Jesus did. And by the way, did you know when we were reading the story earlier that one of the people holding the cloaks of those who did the stoning was Saul, who would become Paul? It will be this incident that will convince St. Paul, not a Christian yet, to extend that wave of persecution. He now feels emboldened and will go and ask for letters from the Jewish authorities to start rooting out Christians from their home. But, of course, that very decision will turn out to be one of the turning points of the whole of church history when this man will be saved. And all of that comes out of Stephen's martyrdom. And that will be our focus in a future episode. But as we conclude this episode, as you look at the life of Stephen, what particularly strikes you as particularly significant? There's so much, isn't there? And in some ways it's hard to pick out one thing, but I think what I see in Stephen is this wonderful blend of the practical and the spiritual. And as a pastor of the years, I've had so many people say to me, oh, you know, I'm not very good. I'm not a very good Christian, you know. You know, I know I come in and clean the hall for you or put the flowers out or serve with the kid, but I'm not very good. And I always want to say to them, stop, for goodness sake. What you are doing is a beautiful expression of what it means to be spiritual. So I think Stephen shouts out with this message of the practical and the spiritual really can and really do belong together. To be deeply practical, you need to be deeply spiritual. To be deeply spiritual, you need to be deeply practical. And it's that sort of man and woman for Jesus who can go out and still change the world today. It may cost us like it cost him. But if we know Jesus like Stephen did, 
then we'll just stick at it and keep doing the practical and the spiritual for as long as God gives us breath to do so. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.